Hi, welcome to today's FPA podcast. I'm Ben Martin. I'm the head of policy strategy and innovation here at the FPA. And today we're going to be talking about valuing and selling your business. We're we'll talking about how to get the best value for your business, how to prepare for the business sale, what to kind of expect on the other side of the sale process. Uh, we're, today we're joined by Graham Bernard from Elixir Consulting, and he's going to talk to us and answer all these questions about how to how to prepare yourself for that sales process. Welcome, Graham. Can you just start off by telling us a bit about yourself and who you are and what you do? And what yeah, sure, Ben. Um, I'm one of the consultants at Elixir Consulting. So we work with um, firms all around the country, large and small, um, financial advice firms in all stages of growth, um, from setting up right through to exit around all sorts of aspects of their financial advice business, um, including sort of guiding them through a sales process. But though we're not business brokers as such, we do get involved in kind of talking to people about how to maximise value and maximise their exit strategy. Fantastic. So, I mean, we could talk all day about how to get your practice right and how to get your business right, but we're going to focus specifically on preparing for for a sale and and that valuation stage. So from working with all the businesses that you kind of work with have you what's kind of the right time for uh, a financial planner to think about selling their business or, or part of their business look ben, it really depends on um the reasons they're thinking to change so i, I know some advisors have got a, a great business and they're happy working in it but as a sole practitioner they've decided that they just can't cope being the sole person running the business, seeing the clients. I mean, so they've decided to to sell so they can uh, um, get that extra support mechanism around them. So their reason for sale is very different from someone that's just not wanting to do the educational standards and has decided that it's time to up stumps and get out of the industry and don't want to continue as a planner. So I think it's first of all, really understanding your reasons for wanting to crystallize the value in your business and get out um, or whether you want to stay in the business and keep working as an advisor. And I guess once you've kind of made that decision, what sort of things do you need to kind of do to start preparing yourself for that that sale of the business? Okay, well, first of all, I think it's been really clear what you want your role to be post-sale. Are you going to keep working in the business? And if so, because that, that changed the dynamics a little bit of the sort of firm you're looking for, because it's not been just about maximising the sale price. It's also, is that in work environments compatible? Will it provide the extra manpower I need to service my clients, all those things that, again, the reasons for doing it become actually the important consideration. If you're just doing effectively you know, a trade sale or, or something where you're exiting out, you might have a work period of 12 months, two years. That's probably less critical than about the sort of the ongoing business environment. It is about maximising the value of your business um, and ensuring um, that you're going to get that very best sale price that you actually can. So once you've sort of started to, once you've made that decision that you, you're going to either cut and run or you're going to work through for a period of time to help build up the business and make that that kind of transition, what sort of things do you need to start doing to optimise the value of the business um, to make sure you're getting the best price possible for the seller? Yeah, look, the, the, I think the key considerations of purchases these days, you know, number one, they, don't, they want to minimise risk. So they want to have certainty about the earning stream. Um, so having, you know, 
a really robust compliance history is is critical. You know, you've got to have shown that you, you your business is compliant. You've been getting through audits effectively, etc. Your client files need to be in really good shape. Um, clearly, you know, electronic. You know, you don't want paper files anymore. So you've got to have scanned documents. Make sure it's all set up in your CRM of choice, and that data is is very transferable. Um, and then, you know, it, it's really then about making sure that your client base is what's desirable. And by that, I mean, we're seeing a big difference now in well, people getting much more forensic about what's making up that revenue. So clients of, um, that have small ongoing fees, and that varies a little bit, but it might be $1,000, $1,500, sometimes even $2,000 per annum are being valued either at one times or sometimes even, even cut out of the sale value completely because advisors that are purchasing it are looking going, for that $1,500, I can't compliantly service those clients. Therefore, I'm either going to have to get rid of them or I'm going to have to lose money on them or take the risk that I can increase the fees. So there's a real risk factor to those clients that are below the economic servicing cost. So you've really got to make sure you've done your fee review piece on your client so people can look at it and go yes those fees are commercial yes they're sustainable and I'm confident when I buy that revenue stream it'll be maintainable and I think the extension to that is then that you've got a really good history of clients signing up to the annual fee agreements ongoing service agreements and again that they're seeing that there's a robust I guess connection that the client so it'll make that certainty greater because see the average attrition rate from businesses, um, you know, purchasing client books is sort of minimum nine, ten percent, and sometimes quite a lot higher. So they're going to start discounting that. And the more, um, I guess, uncertainty there is around the maintain maintainability of that income stream, the more they'll discount on the assumption that some of those clients are going to walk. And what can you do to sort of improve the quality of those those client relationships in the period where you're where you're actually getting to the stage where you're looking to actually sell? Yeah. Um, well, I think it, it is having those um, robust fee conversations and making sure you're you're getting an appropriate fee in place that is commercial and relevant that will be attractive. So um, it is migrating some clients from asset based fees to fixed fees, for example, if you if if you believe that's going to be um, more sustainable. And certainly, we see practices probably being devalued if all the clients are asset-based fees at the moment because of the volatility of earnings. So advisors uh, seem to be putting a bit of a premium on those practices that have had clients migrated across to flat fees, particularly when they look at it and go, yeah, that service proposition they're being delivered, it is profitable um, and those clients are maintainable. Then it comes down to, um, I think one of the big risks that so many, particularly small practices and sole practitioners have is the clients feel they're doing business with the advisor, not with the business. So there's that real strong linkage to the planner. And it's, to be honest, great for the ego that people like doing business with you and an advisor, but it's not a great way to run a business, you know, and, and you really want to try and make sure that the value proposition is not around, you know, you personally, and certainly you as a stock picker or anything like that that was attributed to your personal skills, because those clients are certainly highly at risk. Um, should the purchase go through. So educating the clients about the business providing a service and a value proposition that's not just around you becomes then much more critical because those relationships are potentially more transferable. Do you think you have to do a process of almost re-engineering your business and re-engineering your client relationships in the lead up to, to being prepared to go to market with your business? 
Yeah, look, potentially. Certainly those firms, like I said, that have a very strong value proposition or linkage around the principle of the business and they're seen as, you know, Joe is my financial planner. That's who, you know, I trust implicitly. The more that's the case, then you, you, you'll benefit from re-engineering where they start to see that there's a team of people providing the service and it's not all about Joe. And certainly that, you know, you're, you're in investment options where you're not a stock picker and how clever you are at picking fund managers or stocks or whatever. Because again, that's high, really at risk in that transfer process. So the more you can show that there's a, a robust investment philosophy that is transferable, again, clients going to be less nervous and less likely to look around to change advisors at the time of, of transfer. And so do you find that businesses are the kind of set up that way to start with have a much easier time in that preparation for sales process or can you sort of shift things around fairly quickly to make that change? I don't think it's an overnight thing yeah. with some of those, you know, to, to, to convince clients who have been working with you for 10 years that there's a different type of relationship that is more transferable. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. So you've got to work to that and start educating the clients, introduce them to more people in the business. You know, if you've got an associate advisor, make sure they're involved in the review meetings. All of these things need to happen. And, and it's over a period of time because, you know, clearly clients might have one, maybe two reviews a year. You want them to experience a bit of that touch points with other people in the business for a period of time for them to feel confident that if you weren't around, they'd still be looked after. And so what do you think is more important? Is it is it your clients that are actually more important or is it the business that you're selling that's actually more important? Well, I think that then depends on, on, on how large the business is. So what we see is businesses, you know, of $2 million to $3 million or more tend to sell on uh, a multiple of profit on EBIT because people look at that as a going concern. So what's the, the process of the business, the, um, the staff and all that? Underneath that level, it's still sold as, as a multiple of recurring income because people are basically buying the book and generally looking to tuck it in. So if you're looking at that multiple of earnings, generally it's the quality of the clients, which is the important thing, and the earning stream around the clients because that's what people are buying and what they're valuing. They'll put a multiple on the different streams of that client income based on age, size, et cetera, of the clients. Um, but above that, when you're looking at EBIT, it is the business quality that's important. How good are the systems and processes the staff, um, yes, the client base still and the quality of the earnings, but the, uh, that infrastructure becomes something that will be looked at and considered in the purchase process. So if you were looking to start to get an idea of how much you might sell your business for, or on the other hand, how much you might buy a business for, what are the sort of, I mean, you talked about recurring revenue multiples. What are the kind of different business valuation methodologies that uh, are kind of out there and being used. The main ones we see, Ben, I said the, the multiple of earnings on the small, I want to say smaller, you know, the sort of $2 million or less typically of, of revenue. And it, it's moving around a bit, but we're seeing, you know, if, if the average is, say, 2.4 to 2.5 times, there are businesses that are selling for only two times because they're seen to have a lot of risk factors or be less attractive. And there's some that might sell for a bit more. Certainly there's, and within that, you're starting to see also, I guess you'd say a stratification of the client base where clients over age 70 might have a lower multiple applied, their revenue, because they're in pension rundown, et cetera. Um, whereas younger growth clients, they might attach a higher multiple to um, risk income. 
generally a bit higher because, again, it's a bit stickier, not having annual annual uh, service agreements to sign and what have you. So that might sit at 2.8 times. And there's a few of the of the um, the broking businesses put out newsletters once or you know once or twice a year to sort of say where the market's at. And you can get that to start to gauge kind of a rough ballpark of what the business might be worth. But to get serious, you probably want to start talking to a, a business broker that's sort of able to look at that and analyse it and break it down a little bit more scientifically. Um, above that level, um, it's basically EBIT, sometimes NPAT, so net profit after tax instead of earning before, which is largely the same, which is obviously the tax rate, 30%, you just brings up the multiple up a little bit higher. Um, but it's generally um, EBIT and around, again, a, a, you'll see variations in the multiples, but if six times is sort of the average, there'll be some really good high-quality firms that are very desirable, they might have a really clear niche market, a whole range of reasons they're very attractive, might sell a bit above the six times for, again, those with sort of risk factors or less desirable, maybe older client base, et cetera, might sell a bit below that sort of multiple. And sorry, and you were talking a little bit about the difference between asset-based fees, commission-based fees, fee for service. How big a difference does that make? Yeah, look, it certainly does. Again, it's you know it, it's at the margin. It's not a deal breaker for most people, but they'll look at that volatility of earnings. So, and again, it's a bit of the mindset of the advisor. If the advisor purchasing it kind of is wedded to and likes asset-based fees or a hybrid of asset and fixed, they'll be more attracted to that because they'll convince themselves that, you know, growing fees over time is attractive. But if you've made the mind shift to flat fees, you'll probably recognise that there's less volatility in those earnings, there's more certainty, and particularly in a period of market downturn like we had last year, that, you know, you don't have that suddenly drop in, in, in revenue that can really hurt. So it's a little bit in the psyche of the purchaser as to how attractive or not that is. Um, but we're seeing generally, you know, it's one of those factors of uncertainty that is tending to put a bit of a discount on a firm if they are purely asset-based fees. Yeah, okay. And in terms of the business models, does it make much difference if you're, for example, self-licensed or whether or not you're operating as a corporate authorised rep type model or you're just selling the clients or a, a portion of clients? Yeah, look, again, it depends a bit on the, on the purchaser. Obviously, being um, self-licensed, there's um, pluses and minuses. Um, there's probably some, some extra risk elements there. You need to go to the cost of probably getting an external compliance audit um, to make sure that it, it has been well-managed as a license as well as, as a business. Um, but we, you know, also see some people, you know, are very attracted to other firms that are within their licensee already because it's obviously very easy to tuck in the same process, the same software, same same compliance regime. So they're seeing as less risk factor. So for a purchaser that's in a large licensee or, you know, in a licensee, they might say, you know, we pay a bit of a premium for someone that's also in that licensee just because of the ease of the transaction. And, and they can go to the licensee and really understand the risk factors around that book probably a little bit easier. Yeah, a bit more mm-hmm. trust. It's a bit yeah, yeah. To, to and there's transparency. Like I said, it's a sort of line of least resistance in in the in the change. Yeah. So in terms of you know, there's there's obviously a number of different ways to finance um, that business acquisition. As the seller of the business, what do you need to be aware of in terms of what how the buyer is going to finance the acquisition and what you may need to do as part of that process. Yeah, look, look, I think I think one of the key things is whether the buyer is providing terms which are subject to finance or have they got something pre-approved. So you can, you know, uh, an experienced 
purchaser would probably go to the lender and have a line of credit already lined up so they're ready to go and sign. And it's really just their decision about the purchase because it's been secured against the value of their existing business. And therefore, it's not the, the the offer will be unconditional in terms of finance. It'll be you know not subject to finance. So there's one less risk factor in place. Um, certainly, then you know if you have an offer that is subject to finance, there's that uncertainty about there might be an offer accepted at a certain valuation. You know, will the financier sign off on that? You know, what's the buffer from the from the, the borrower's perspective? So that probably just adds that little element of uncertainty that you when you're weighing up different offers that you need to consider. What sort of protections might be the buyer looking to put in place in terms of the, the the purchase that the seller of the business might want to be aware of before they go go into the process yeah look good question the obvious one is the earnout period so um you know you'll see um deals where it's you know 60 percent up front then 20 20% year two, 20% year three. Some might be 80% up front and just another 20% in the following year. So it depends how much is being retained and what are the conditions on that. Again, that you know adds an element of risk. If there's you know 40% at risk based on the percentage of clients are going to be retained, there's a higher degree of uncertainty than if 80% was paid. And then, yeah, what is the, you know, if you have 40% of that valuation at stake, and yet the purchaser comes in and radically increases fees or moves clients to a new platform that they don't like. You might find that that triggers something where there's clients leaving, your your payout figure is reduced, but you've had very little control over that. So I think it's understanding what they're going to do that may impact that retention of clients positively or negatively can then, you know, increase or decrease the amount of risk you've got on that retention amount. And so should there be any terms or conditions as a seller that you might want to, might need to put on on the transaction or the process? You, you probably do want to, but again, it's how enforceable some of those things are um, is probably the question. So I think it's really about then having a, a good, robust conversation with the purchaser and understanding their intent, looking at their existing business model. You know, it's, it's highly likely they'll migrate clients to whatever the investment solution they got in place, mm. the platforms, et cetera. How does that sit with you? How does that, you know, I know a lot of advisors, you know, one of their key considerations is what's going to happen to my clients when I leave, you know, have a real affinity that they've built up, not surprisingly, and they want to make sure the client's looked after. So you really, you know, is the investment philosophy aligned with what you've been doing? You know, you know, if it was an aggressive stock picker, but you've been into, you know, more passive investments, clearly there's going to be a sort of a, an impact on some of the clients that you might not feel comfortable with. So I think it's really understanding that that philosophy of the business that's buying it, the investment philosophy, how they're managing and how they're managing the staff. So again, the what happens to the staff on the team is obviously a key consideration for, for a lot of advisors. So, you know, what's the team like that's there? How many um, staff will be retained? What's the working conditions? All of those things become important as well. Again, I think it's very hard to lock those things into a, a, an enforceable contract, but it's still something we can be fairly clear on the intent and the likelihood that that will end up well for both the staff and the clients post the sale. Are there any other types of questions that the seller should be asking the buyer um, so that they've got comfort around those sort of aspects of, of what they're what, what's going to happen to the business, what's going to happen to the client, so that they've got some comfort with the, the transaction they're entering into. 
Yeah, I think I think it's just really delving into that as much as you can. You know, like I said, really understanding their investment philosophy. Do they intend to move the clients? You know, what's the impact of, of um, their service proposition on the clients? Will be more or less than what's being delivered. Um, I don't. I just think you've just really got to go through and analyze all of those things that make up the value proposition of the business and understand their their long term vision and strategic direction. You know, if they've got a business plan, have a look at the business plan. Um, particularly, you know, and this, and this is where it gets really important. If you're wanting to stay in the business, whether it's a merger of some sort or you're wanting to stay on as a salaried advisor for you know a number of years really critical that the vision lines up with your vision, the values of the business, you know, see if they've, they've been able to articulate the values, the vision, the purpose, all of that becomes really important. Um, and particularly in a merger, you know, this is a marriage of two people. And if they haven't had a chat about what the future looks like, where they want to head, it almost inevitably ends up in tears. The buyer is going to ask a lot of questions to the seller. What sort of questions should you be expecting as the seller of the business to come from the buyer um, so that you can start to prepare answers and and have things ready for them? Yeah. So I I think certainly, you know, audit reports, you know, they want to see, you know, that history of compliance, you know, what have been the audit results. And if there have been, you know, any any crosses, exactly why what's been done to remediate that. Um, Obviously, full detail on the client book so they can analyse that. You know, so make sure it's easy to produce out of the CRM if it's not already there, you know, not just dates of birth and thumb, but, you know, everything else about the demographics of the client base. Um, you know, we always like to sort of have, you know, client avatars of typical clients so they can start to say, here's the, here's the sort of clients we typically sort of work with and, and get them to fit, to understand that. Um, again, history, you know, the staff, you know, make sure there's either position descriptions in place or a very clear um roles and responsibilities breakdown so people can get a very clear view as to who if they are likely to have excess staff which ones to retain which ones do they need etc so they can start to analyze that so i think a, a lot of clarity around the job functions in the business um that'll help them quickly assess you know what they need to retain or, or, or let go um and yeah i think i think it's clarity around that value proposition of what you've been providing the client so it's clear what the client expectations are both in terms of what you've got um, detailed in the ongoing service agreement or annual service agreement, but also kind of a, just a broader description of how you engage with clients, sample reports, et cetera, like that. So it's very clear what the client expectation is based on what's been delivered to date. What sort of other professional services should you be looking to use as the, as the seller? Um, look, certainly a lawyer, you know, make sure you've got a lawyer lined up to review the contract and someone that, that's experienced in financial services sales. So not just your, you know, your, your suburban accountant, you want a suburban lawyer, you want to make sure it's someone that's actually done a number of these transactions, so knows what to look for in the agreements and knows what's commercial and what's not. So I think that's the, the number one. Um, and probably, you know, speak to a, a, a valuer and get a sense of, you know, what a fair and marketable price is. At the end of the day, it's like buying or selling a house. You know, the value is what the market will pay. But I think be very clear on your expectations and make sure you're not, you know, overly high, but also maybe you're underselling yourself. So a very clear view around where the market sits so that you don't feel you need to take the first offer, but also that you're not pricing yourself out of the market. You know, I think they're the, they're the key considerations to my mind. What are, I guess, some of the alternatives that, you know, if if you're, God, just I'm not into running this business anymore or I'm looking to get out of financial planning more broadly, what are some of the alternatives you might have um, 
around rather than selling what what else could you be thinking about doing as an alternative okay so i think the first major alternative is looking to bring a successor into the business so hiring a, a salaried advisor that you can bring on board um probably check that they're a fit and then over a period of time start selling down equity to them either through vendor finance or or, or through their own financial uh, borrowings and reduce equity. And then that has the advantage that you might stay on part-time. A lot of advisors I know want to retain, say, 30 clients to keep active. They don't want to just completely um, get out of it. So you might have a minority shareholding and that becomes a good earning stream as well. So um, that's certainly one. Um, We do see a lot of people looking at mergers and trying to sort of merge because they don't want to, again, get out of the business completely. It probably adds just that extra element of, of risk like we've touched on around, you know, is it a, is it the right marriage, you know, as well as a business fit? Is it a personal fit? The goals and aspirations of the two people compatible? Um, yeah, it adds another element of risk. Um, and then it, it's, again, the sort of the nature of the sale. So there's, um, you know, a big firm doing a tuck-in is very different from another sole practitioner that's buying a business because they need the scale. Again, it comes down to, like I said, right at the beginning, what brings you to the table? So if, for example, you're feeling overworked, under-resourced, you probably want to go somewhere where there's a bit of scale where you feel that they can actually add some manpower to the business, a bit of horsepower to take that pressure off you. And, you know, you can't have 220 clients you've got to review. You're saying, you know, that's just too many. It's no good going to another advisor that's also at capacity because that's not going to fix the problem. Yes. So. Again, be really clear on the problems you're trying to solve and will it be solved by merging with a, a small business or a big business? The advantage of a small business is if you want to still stay, you know, have a seat at the table and, and, and have some control and influence, it's probably easier in a small business than if you're a tuck into a very large conglomerate style business. And are you finding uh, planners emerging with other planners at the moment or when they're looking to to do these kind of merger type arrangements, they're looking at more um, professional service type things, working with with accountants and lawyers and trying to merge them into some sort of larger conglomerate. I, I think it's it's more common that I'm seeing is the planning firms coming yep. together. Um, you know, it's always difficult that sort of the the linkage between the financial planning firm and accounting firm, and it's probably the exception that it works really well and is value creation creating. Um, and then, you know, you've got the issue that the, the planning firm is probably on a higher multiple than the accounting firm. So again, are they going to pay up what it's worth? So if anything, I'm, I'm probably hearing more planners that are looking to acquire small accounting practices and right. tap into them to, to broaden their range of services. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, the accounting firms seem to be just trying to grow organically. They might bring a, a salary planner on staff, but they don't, not so often that I'm seeing that they're, they're buying financial planning business because I just don't think accountants understand that business as well as their accounting business and probably struggle to look at the purchase price and understand that the, the multiples that are being paid. So it'd be great to hear if you have any insight on sort of some success stories around somebody who's done really well out of selling their business. Uh, yeah, look, um, they certainly are. You know, there's some people that are very happy they've made, you know, particularly if you've sold you know, in the last few years, you've probably got a, a, a premium price, um, you know, realised, you know, an asset of, you know, two, three million dollars and, and, um, and 
put the money into your super and you, you know, you're living a great retirement life. So there's certainly a lot of um, senior advisors that have exited and done very well. In more recent times, what we've seen are the ones that have been able to sort of grow scale effectively. And they're the ones that seem to be quite happy when they have made a, a marriage that's compatible. They're actually seeing, yeah, I, I'm less stressed than I was when I was just on my own. I've got some people to share you know, the, the burdens of running the business and bounce ideas off, but also some scale to invest in technology and software and all these things which are costing a lot of money. So certainly when that merger goes well, you know, they're definitely happier than they were pre-merger and less stressed. Um, but not all of them end in happy marriages. You know, it can be that people, you know, get disappointed when the reality hits and, and things are not quite what they what they seem. But when it works well, yeah, absolutely, they're... they're you know, it's a it's a bigger business. It's got more scale and resources, and probably less stress on the principal than a sole practitioner. Have you got any examples where somebody came to you and said, "Look, I'm looking to sell sell my business," um, and you looked at it and you went, mm, "Not going. This isn't going to go particularly well." But you were able to work with them over six months, twelve months, two years, or something to turn it around. Is yeah. Look, you know, we certainly. Um, because in in fact it's 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 probably similar to the work we do with all the practices we work with. Because as I say to, say to all my clients, you know, a good business to work in is a, is a very saleable business. Because if you think all those things we talked about that are going to maximise value, yeah. you know, having a, a, a clear value proposition at a target client base, they're all paying equitable commercial fees that are that are profitable. You don't have a lot of that's a good business to work in as well as one that is very saleable. So all those things that reduce risk are active. So it's all the things we work for with our practices and they improve over time. They get extra revenue. They're probably working less hours than what they were to generate the revenue before, even though they are more profitable. And then over time, if they have sold, then they've got a much higher purchase price than what they would have before. Um, but funnily enough, some that have said, oh, I'm, I'm looking to wind out, we, we've actually improved their business so they're actually enjoying being a financial planner again. And they've actually sort of got their mojo back. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's part. So some have said, actually, I'm happy to defer because I'm actually quite enjoying this again. You know, yeah. we, we, they're less on that treadmill of just pumping through reviews and not having a chance to engage with clients and all these things which have distracted them and all the compliance burdens. And some of them have turned around and said, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm actually enjoying being a planner. I guess, have you seen any disasters? Um, any that have gone the absolute opposite way? Fortunately, none that I've worked with closely, but I've sort of seen from the outside certain mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm, look, I'm aware of one where an advisor um, sold his business and was fully expecting to stay working in the business. Within two months, he was out because basically he was pushed out of the business and it was clear that the purchaser never had any intention of them working in the business for any length of time. And, and again, this one, you know, it's so hard to, to contractually protect against those sort of circumstances because a purchase can always make your life pretty miserable if they're the majority owner. So it, it's really, it's a, just reinforced, you know, understanding that culture, the values, the, their strategic direction, you never remove all the risk, but don't just take things at face value. You know, that's important. And I have heard of certainly what was dressed up as the post-sale world end up being something very different when reality hit. Um, and I'm sure most people have, have heard of those sort of circumstances from others in the industry that still carry the scars. So, uh, Is there anything else you wanted to share or cover with members no, look, I, look, selling their businesses? Yeah, look, I, I just think, you know, at the moment it's still, it is a really active market, isn't it? There's certainly lots of people because 
there's a lot there's pressure from licensees on getting practices to merge but even as, as um one of the, the lenders pointed out to me the other day they're now um not lending money to sole practitioners because they've seen the risk that if a if you're a sole practitioner in the business and something happens to you you got COVID and you couldn't work for two three four months that revenue could well be turned off. The licensee could say, you're unable to service those clients. We're not going to take that risk of fee for no service. We're going to turn that off and suddenly you haven't got a business. So yeah. all of this pressure on sole practitioners to, to have, you know, an alternative advisor in there and all that sort of stuff is just amplifying. So the need for scale and efficiency, um, the re- advice risks, all that sort of thing, we're seeing massive pressure on consolidation um, for all these reasons. And so I think, you know, if you're not there already, you need to be starting to think about this and, and and not if, but how you're going to get that scale. Is it bringing someone into your business? Is it merging? Is it becoming a tuck-in under a large corporate owner? Again, there's a number of scenarios. You've got to work out what's going to be right for you, but the status quo probably isn't an option. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Graham, for sharing your insights and tips and tricks for uh getting your business ready for that sale process and then making it as successful as possible um, when you do it. Um, where can uh, where can members find you if they want to find out more from you and, and what you're up to? Yeah, so certainly go to the Alexa website. Um, my contact details there. You can even book in a, a, a free um, appointment time. We can spend half an hour just chatting about your circumstances and, uh, and I can share any thoughts then about um, what you might want to look at and think about if you if you are going down this path. So always happy to have a conversation, always enjoy chatting to advisors. So just go to the elixirconsulting.com.au website and, um, yeah, make some contact. Thanks, Graham. And I think just to summarise everything, it's prepare, 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 prepare. Yep. And then uh, you should have a successful transition there. Exactly. And, um, yeah, and, and, and really think through, yeah, put your black hat on and go, what could go wrong? Yeah, I think is the important thing. Don't, you know, it's easy to have the rose-coloured glasses and be focused on what's going to go right. And this is where the beauty of talking to a lawyer is they'll always flick to the back of a contract and look at the things about when things go pear-shaped. You need that mindset to say, what if, what if it doesn't work? What if this happens? What if that happens? So you go in with your eyes open and fully aware of all the risk. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you for joining us, Graham. And thank you, FPA members, for listening into the FPA podcast. Uh, I'm Ben Martian, and you can find us and me and join the conversation on FPA community. Have a great day. Thanks, everybody.